Hello, this is your host, Marshall Fields, and welcome to Positive Communication Habits and Thought Process, or P-Chat-P for short. Here, we talk about real-life experiences and mindsets that help us navigate difficult conversations, even if we're just talking to ourselves. We can change the world by changing how we talk to it. I love the part where you talk about being in the classroom, and, you know, you said, you you came in naked and then quickly put on a winter parka. Mm-hmm. I just want to paraphrase my understanding, and, and you let me know if I'm hitting the mark, but oftentimes as kids and sometimes as adults, we just, we feel comfortable in our skin. We feel open, and so we enter situations open, ready to learn, like you started a new workplace. You haven't figured out all the dirty secrets of where the bodies are buried, and so you're just like this open book uh, Yes, this is me. Let's go. And then things happen. Something said, something occurs, and then you cover up, you close off. Because now you realize there's not a level of psychological safety, so you don't feel vulnerable. Is that what you were saying in that? And if not, please. No, absolutely. Right. We entered, and again, I think it stems from trust, right? Especially in a work environment, because if it's a new job, you picked me. You picked me, right? So I'm so excited. Yeah, I might be nervous, right? But it's this, it's this anxious excitement where you can't wait, you know, even when you don't know exactly what you'll be doing, or maybe you know exactly what you will be doing. It doesn't matter. What matters is, is we feel like we feel safe. We enter that space feeling safe because there's an element of trust because you picked me. So therefore we're baselining from this place of mutual trust and respect, right? And then, like you said, something gets said and somebody goes, oh, don't take it so personally. Or somebody says, oh, that's just Marshall. He didn't mean it that way. You'll get to know him. Or, oh, that's just Serenity. She's always been like that. Excuses to stay the same. And yes. And we, depending on our lived experience, it either becomes this slow application of like socks, shorts, (laughs) pants, or we go straight from, I am here to parka. And that's what happened for me. And I never, I never took it off again until very recently um, in the professional space. Just in thinking about, you know, what was the catalyst for that? You talk about how, um, you know, at first you seen, you felt like you were so welcomed and, you know, embraced, you know, you were this new international student, you're coming out, oh, wow, let's, and then there was something that your teacher said to you, or there had been a series of things that were said to you. What, what were those? Um, it was grounded in most of the side comments were grounded in readings, right? In a shared experience. In eighth grade, you all read of mice and men. Oh, well, you didn't. And then the conversation would continue. Well, remember last year when you all read Grapes of Wrath? Well, did you read? You didn't. Right? It was this series of shared experiences. Um, academic shared experiences. 
And the clear distinction of everybody else, right? The calling out by the teacher that everybody else has this shared experience except this one, right? It's like being in the room and the spotlight is only on you, right? It's not, which is not the same as being the only one in the dark. You can hide in the dark. You can, you can cry in the dark. You can be uncomfortable in the dark. When the spotlight is only on you, there's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to cry. And there's also the fact that the spotlight contextually could be a good thing. However, the way that Mm -hmm. it's being shown, um, you know, in, in certain situations such as this one is you're different which saying you're different can translate to you don't belong here. You're not one of us. You're an outsider. And, you know, you add to that, if there are certain academic struggles or differences in translating or, you know, traversing the way your brain thinks into a a new language and, and a new dialect, let's shine a spotlight on, on those, those struggles or perceived struggles. Um, you know, so mm-hmm. I just I think that's so important for all of us, whether you're, a, you know, a business owner, operator, teacher, instructor, professional in the workplace or in home to just understand how our words can create this sense of welcome, belonging and acceptance or a sense of you're not one of us. You're being ostracized. Uh, you're different. And just the tone by which it's said, it's not, you're a good different, it's a, you're different. And I think, mm-hmm. I think folks should really read uh, this article because as much as we've talked about it, I think there's still so much that, um, you know, folks can gain from it. So I just, I just want to shout that out because there was a lot of uh, good things in there. And I've, I've even had to, for myself, be very conscious of the words that I say, and and then also who I'm talking to, because it is it's so easy not to take into consideration how your words are impacting someone else. That, like that's that's my favorite thing to talk about because I do believe that you can change the world by changing how you talk to it. And um, yeah, so I really appreciated this, and it made me think of a movie. How sometimes there are unnecessary lines of division that are drawn mostly from a place of ignorance. The name of the movie is Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. And in this scene, Bruce and soon to be wife, Linda, are telling Linda's mother that they plan to have children. Let's listen to the clip. You want to have children someday. Ah. But what will they be? They won't be white and they won't be oriental. They'll be some kind of half-breed, and they won't be accepted by either side. They'll be American. Linda's American. I'm American. You're an American citizen. You're not really an American. Bruce. You'd better put a band-aid on that cut, Mr. Lee. Bruce! Bruce! The way people can frivolously say things that um, that will impact you. And you could tell she wanted, oh, you better put a cut. 
the cut on his hand is the last thing that we should probably address in this situation. Just me. But her level of awareness, her, her level of sensitivity to the weight of the words that she just said. Wow. We all do it, right? We all say something we didn't mean, right? Or it didn't come out like we meant it, or we didn't realize the impact it had. And, you know, that was not our intent. Um, and it's just so hard. I have friends that have a podcast, Where Are You Really From? And it talks about this exact thing and all the ways that we use difference as a dividing factor as opposed to a unifying factor, right? When I, when I mentor my staff or even when I teach students, I tell them any setting you're in and you're having a conversation with a new person, find out how you're different. Find out what makes them unique. A, that is what you will remember about that person, right? Because it's, because it is different, because it is a unique factor about them. But where we tend to find commonalities to make it more comfortable, instead, I challenge to find the difference, find the uniqueness, because that's where we learn to grow in respect for difference. Not so that we never say things like that, like that's in that clip, which is exactly where I knew you were going. Like as soon as you said there's a movie clip, I was like, it's gonna be one of two things. <laughs> but so that we are more aware of the intent to do it. So that maybe we will do it one less time, right? And it's nobody is perfect. Nobody is without bias. Nobody is without mistakes. So it's not about never doing it again. It's about being empathetic when you, when it does happen to know really how to reach out and come at it from a place of compassion and care when you work to rebuild that relationship, right? Or to be able to be, um, an advocate enough that when you hear somebody else do it, you go, Hey, you may not think about it this way, but let me tell you about an experience I had. Right. Um, and I think so often the thing that makes anything related to equity work so hard is, is it so often get talks about talked about from a binary perspective. You either do it or you don't. Yep. You're either biased or you're not. That's it. You're either racist or you're not like, <laughs> that's not how it works, right? Like that is that is, that is not acknowledging the humanness of it, right? My story is not your story. We probably have shared experiences because we have similarities. But even if we were exactly the same, our stories would not be the same. True. Our lived experiences are not the same. Right. And so it's never about knowing all you can know about everybody so that we all create the one shared experience and we all have the one shared experience. Like, 
how boring would life be like that, right? But it's about humanizing every conversation so that I'm focused on you as the person and not just trying to get through the networking event or figuring out how you can help me professionally or figuring out, you know, whatever the agenda is in my head, right? When I'm focused on you as a person, as a friend, as a colleague, then we come to respect each other through our differences, because of our differences, and highlight those differences as like, dude, this is the guy. Like, he is such an advocate and a friend for me. And we have these really deep, difficult conversations about topics that most people run from. Right? But it came from a place of like, hey, let's figure this out. Who are you? What are you interested in? Right? I think your first question to me was, what are you passionate about? You know, and that was a year ago. Because we focused on each other, not any, literally not anything else other than the care and compassion for the person on the other side. And it just gets forgotten. Like human beings innately are interesting. You can take what someone would potentially find as mundane or boring. And if you look close enough, if you listen long enough, you will find a whole universe of things that could probably hold your attention. And I think that's how I try to approach every conversation. Stay curious. Um, Simon Sinek had a quote. Uh, he said, um, you know, good leaders always stay more curious than judgmental. And I think oftentimes when people begin a conversation, they begin it from a standpoint of preconceived notions. They're listening to hear validation or confirmation of what they already thought. And I've even seen it on people's faces when they start to have this argument um, of what you're saying, of how you feel or how you perceive a situation against how they think you should or how they think you really do or how they view you. They, they fight for their preconceived uh, notion or version of what you should say or how you should feel. And that in and of itself destroys the, the possibility of, of a conversation that will yield any type of genuine fruit. Um, so I'm, I'm with you 100% on that. And, and I, I find it more interesting when you can have conversations through a blank canvas and it's like, hey, I'm listening to you. Here's a paintbrush. Dip into your heart, dip into your brain. What's 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 going to hit the canvas? What's this going to look like when it's all over with? Um, then that leads me to some yeah. general questions that I have, because after we go through our general questions, which I'm excited to hear your responses, then we're going to spin the wheel. Okay, we are going to spin. The okay. Wheel of Very excited about the wheel. Oh, boy. It's going to be good. I promise you. I promise you. You guys are going to love it. So um, first general question. Uh, your research focuses on the intersection of social justice and leadership. How can leaders promote diversity, equity, and inclusion in their own organizations and communities? It has to be embedded and it has to be intentional. Um, 
I, my work focuses on policies and processes, right? So how are we, uh, or how have we created infrastructures that by design make it harder for some to access, right? And that, that can be because it's a formal structure in policy and process or an informal structure and it's built in culture, right? Inside every organization, you can identify, anybody who works for that organization Organization can identify that person will never get promoted, that person can will never get promoted. But you have to ask yourself as a, as a company, as an organization, why is that, right? Um, and what happened along the way that we set up that person or out group of people to fail because ultimately that's what we've done. Right. Um, so from a leadership standpoint, it's about staying uncomfortable and building in not just the one time strategic plan where you talk about some goals and outcomes and then the action items. And then by the time you're done with the 18-month process to build the five-year strategic plan, so you're really already two years in, everything after that becomes performative, right? It's about really taking the time, which may take 18 months to two years at the beginning, to really identify some critical holes. Who needs mentorship? How are we identifying our talent inside of the organization? How are we um, supporting leaders to grow, right? How are we, um, I'm a big fan of grow and let go. So if we're not operating from a space of, we should be building such strong leaders that other companies want to recruit them, we're doing them a disservice. We want them to stay. We should be building the retention model and the company culture so that they stay but we want them to be so good that they are highly sought after. How do we do that? How do we make that case? How do we make that strong? So for me, from a leadership perspective, it's about policy and processes, not programming and events. Those can come. Those are support elements. Those are wraparound support elements, but the policy and processes have to be equitable. So as an educator, you know, how do you how do you incorporate principles of social justice into your teaching? Like, what advice do you have for other educators who are interested in doing the same? Is it the same answer? Um, this is my favorite part. This is this is the cheat question, right? Because the intersection of everything is people, right? So if we're not focused on the intersectionality of every industry with the community so that we're creating people-centered, future-focused communities, everything dissolves. Nothing is sustainable, right? So it doesn't matter if you're in um, corporate finance, investment banking, nonprofit sector, the intersection of, of all those things is still the people inside of our communities, right? And it, it actually, you know, people always want to talk about make the business case for diversity. Cool. We can do that and we can cite those numbers. But at the end of the day, it's very basic, right? If people aren't thriving, 
They cannot invest in the economy. They can't buy things. They can't shop for things. They can't go anywhere. They can't contribute, right? So at the end of the day, it's really basic economics, right? And making sure that everybody within our communities can thrive. And the only way they can do that is if they can access everything that they need, right? So when we teach, when I teach about it or when I support faculty who teach about it, it doesn't necessarily matter because I'm just looking for the lens of the applied major. So if we're in public health, we're talking about it from a perspective of integrated community maps around social determinants of health, right? How are people making money? Do they have jobs? Do they have transportation? Can they access healthy foods? Do they have access to clean water, safe and affordable housing? All of these pieces that contribute to health outcomes. That's what we're talking about. That's how we talk about social justice through the public health lens. If we're talking about it in business, we're talking about segments of entrepreneurs and investment where they need extra supports to thrive inside of business. So how are our small businesses getting access to loans? Um, how are we growing the number of female founders and ethnic minority founders uh, for startup companies? How are we being intentional about how we elevate those companies in those mixed teams, right? Um, if we're looking at it from arts and sciences, right? How are we um, looking at whether it's um, artists that get into mainstream um Installations, that's the word I was looking for. Um, mainstream installations, right? And what are their backgrounds? Who are they coming from? What are they talking about, right? Maybe they're talking about mental health and it's uh, manifesting through images of the impact of safety in schools. Maybe it's about um, recycled art um, to make up statement of purpose through what we wear and what we choose to accessorize with. Maybe it's a company like um, Anshul out of Louisville who works in sustainable clothing, but they use um, and sustainable fashion textiles, but they use women in India who have been part of the sex trafficking industry and are really working to break the generational gap in poverty and in sex working by employing these women intentionally, right? That's social justice. Maybe it's New Frontier out of Moorhead and their focus on circular denim for a healthier planet while also employing people out of Eastern Kentucky and generating, you know, revitalizing the economy in Eastern Kentucky by keeping their headquarters there, right? That is social justice and economic development. So as an educator, it doesn't matter what the topic area is. At the end of the day, it's about people-centered, future-focused communities. And we humans, every human, you, me, and the white guy downstairs, we all sit at that intersection and we have to be thought of from three, those are three very different lenses by companies to consider how do we make sure we're all thriving so those businesses thrive. When the communities aren't thriving, the people in the communities aren't thriving, the businesses don't thrive. Speaking of the people, when it comes to students, what, what do you think are some of the most pressing issues uh, that students face? 
Cool. I don't know if we have time for all of that. Um, Just give me like the top three or four that come into your mind. I, I do think mental health is a huge struggle. I think I'm going to put accountability and responsibility in the same bucket. I do think young people struggle with this, right? Um, and I don't think, I genuinely don't believe they're mentally developed enough to understand the consequences and to make the right choice, right? Like, yes, I want to go play with my friends and I want to get good grades. I am, I may or may not be mature enough at 17, 18, 19 to know which one should take priority and be able to do that over and over and over again without then sacrificing my mental health in the process, right? Most adults aren't good at balance, but we want students to be able to balance this, these insane weights of work and school and volunteer and be a holistic, well-rounded person. And you should also read for fun and you should be involved in every student organization and you should be a leader and you should like, <laughs> that's all the way it's real. insanity. Right. So, right. So mental health, um, accountability and responsibility. Um, and then the balance, the, um, I think there's a real struggle in identity, but I mean that from a place of social pressure. Who am I supposed to be? So the pressure to fit. In I often tell people 100%, right? Exactly. There's a pressure to fit, right? So I often tell people I'm not the mom. I'm not the parent. I want to be. I want to be the fun mom. I want to be the mom that doesn't care about grades or um, maybe I do care about grades, but I, I also know that they can stay up late at night and it'll be fine. Maybe I don't want to force them to eat a new vegetable every week. Maybe I can't afford to give them a vegetable every week, right? I am not the mom I want to be. I am the mom I think they need me to be. And that's hard because I don't ever say, because I told you so. I don't ever say just because we always have the conversation and it's because of these three things, because I worry about their mental health. I need them to know I am a safe space regardless of what happens. It's because I'm worried about accountability and responsibility. I need them to understand there are consequences when they choose. And that's fine that they made a choice, but it better be an informed choice and they better be prepared for the consequence when they do that. Right? And that that is everything from her refusing to wear her cleats last night at the ball field and then she stepped on a rock and I went, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> I told you to put your shoes on. You chose this. To what happens to them. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. To what happens to them 10 years from now if they cheat on a paper, right? And there's academic integrity involved and they get a zero in the class and now they have to repeat. And, oh, that's a $3,600 consequence in college, mm. right? I do it because I'm worried about that accountability and responsibility. I do it because 
my son has long hair and he loves his long hair. And then he said to me, am I going to get bullied in middle school? And I immediately said, yep, you are. But it doesn't matter. If you want your long hair, keep it. What matters is, can you come and talk to us about it? What matters is, does it make you happy? Does it bring you joy? How do we support you in that? What matters is, why do you feel obligated to cut your hair or do you? Right? I, I worry about the pressure, both for him and especially for her, to fit in. I can remember my grandmother asking um, a boyfriend in a previous life, doesn't it bother you that she only wears, wears wrinkled sweats? Like, doesn't that bother you? Like, wouldn't you like her to wear something else? <laughs> so basically, like, she's no. using him to push her own agenda, basically. 100%, right? She would also, when I was pregnant, she would say things like, I love how... Girls these days are not worried about their curves. And, you know, in my day, we had to hide that we were pregnant and these giant moo-moos, but you all are just out there. And I was like, Grandma, I am 5'1". There is nothing on this planet that is going to hide this belly on a 5'1 body. Like, that's just not happening. It's out here whether I want it to be or not, right? But I never, I don't feel pressure to dress a certain way in my free time. I do at work, but that's a, that's a different conversation. That's about armor, right? And the armor that I need. But I worry about that for my kids and I want them to be able to own that. So those are my three things. (laughs) I mean, they're, they're great three things. And, and I have, you know, I, I have four, I always claim them like I don't have a wife, but, um, I have, we have, uh, four kids and, um, you know, our three daughters who are still in uh, the house. I just, I just want to let you know that pretty much everything that you said from the hair to the clothing, to the pressure to fit in, I've seen it in all of them at different ages from 10 to 15 to, I'm sorry, 11 uh, she would she would kill me if I took away that year. Mm-hmm. I tell you. Uh, but from eleven to fifteen yep. to um, nineteen, I I've seen it, and it's different for each of them. But they still have to go through that, and they're still discovering self. I am still discovering self. There are new parts of my personality and purpose that that still uncover, and and I love it. I love the journey, and one of the life lessons that I think I've kind of heard in what you were saying and what I try to use is I don't want to make things easier for my kids. I want to make them stronger so that those things that come at them are easier to deal with. But the world is going to be the world. You know, you've, you've obviously proven yourself. I just feel weird if I didn't take advantage of you while you're here. You're not going to say no. Actually, no, you would because you're just, you're that type of person to have that strength and not fully. But, um, I just, I just wanted to talk about a quote and then I'm going to ask you for some, uh, 
I'm going to ask you for some free advice on the spot, okay? So this quote that you shared on Facebook from John Steinbeck, which ironically you've already mentioned uh, some of the books that he's written, um, you know, Grapes of Wrath, uh, Mice and Men. But as you, as you look at this quote, it is the nature of a man to rise to greatness when greatness is expected of him. I'll say that again. It is the nature of man to rise to greatness when greatness is expected of him. So as, as we process that, just a question, okay? How do we continually expect greatness while at the same time not putting unrealistic demands and pressure on those we're trying to develop, whether a parent, teacher, student, business owner, how do we do that? Because greatness is not the same. My very first, uh, real boss, like not a summer job. My very first real boss, um, Rob Akers said this, my very first year of teaching as we worked as a team, um, to figure out how to make sure all students were achieving. I have told my kids this, um, and I live by this. It's not about whether you get an A or a C. It's about whether or not I know you tried your hardest. And you said something a minute ago, um, in your response to that last question about, um, it being so hard and it, you want them to be, a, you want your daughters to be able to respond. And for me, that is the greatness. I don't know. The greatness isn't knowing I don't have to, I get to. And I want them to always choose to be better. I want them to always choose to work harder. But I have to help them build the skill set, the toolbox to do that. And again, it comes back to the individual, right? And when I work with students, I work really hard with my students for them to quit comparing themselves to others. And they'll joke and they'll tell you that I spend a lot of time going, you're not special. You're not special. You have not done anything special yet. All you've done is everything else your peers have done. They joined a club, you joined a club. You became a leader, they became a leader. They got a job, you got a job. And we build these resumes of life based on what everybody else is doing around us as opposed to what we were meant to do. Nothing kills my spirit faster than to be told to just maintain the status quo. I am innately driven to want to know more, to want to be better. And that's hard and that's exhausting. But when I say I do it scared and I try and model that, when I say I'm just trying to be the parent I think my kids need, not the one I want to be, I model that 
through through this, right? Through figuring out, and we're coming right back around to humanizing the work. Who are they? And can I find the light that's inside of them and help it burn brighter? Right? And as, as leaders, as parents, as friends, the message isn't any different. Can you find the light and help it burn brighter? My greatness may not be your greatness. And it was never meant to be. My greatness is only my path and my journey. And that's my light to share with the world. My purpose is to fan your flame. And that will be our shared greatness. But greatness for you and greatness for me are different. Our shared greatness is fanning the flame for each other. Well, so so when I hear you talk, uh, and, and for everyone who's listening, I told you, you would be encouraged and inspired. So don't say I never <laughs> gave you anything, but just when I hear you talk, I, I think if we, if we mm-hmm. seek to shelter them from the struggle, how can they ever develop the, the skill set, the mental fortitude, the ability to survive and to just realistically expect that, Hey, this is going to be a challenge. How bad do you want it? If you want it bad enough, develop whatever it takes for you, whether it be network, friends, um, you know, funds, however. So I love that. I love that. This concludes episode six, part two of building equitable communities, fostering greatness and humanizing your work. Check out the conclusion of this interview in part three coming up next. We get valuable advice on launching a business. Dr. Wright will face off against the will of topics where she'll be faced with a series of complex questions that she must answer unscripted with zero prep. On the will of topics that will be spun, there will be religion, economics, entertainment, education, labor, law, politics, sex, and war. Any one of these topics can be chosen. To conclude the interview, I'll ask questions that are used by none other than John Maxwell when he speaks to successful professionals. Stay connected, like, and subscribe. If you like this episode and if you like PChatP, you can find and subscribe on all major podcast platforms. You can support us at pchatp.com. We hope you join us in changing the world by changing how we talk to it. This episode was directed and produced by Marshall Fields with music and audio engineering by Chris Brueggemann.